The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saulnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. We've got uh, a bit of a tight timetable today on the Q&A show, so we'll dispense with a lot of the chatter up front. And whoa, whoa, but I just got to say, uh, tight timetable, that's pretty mm-hmm. good. You like that one? Yeah, you I, said it beautifully as well, I, so I, well, congratulations. I, I master the English language, people know that. <laughs> There's not one word that I can't pronounce. Or at least try to. Right? <laughs> well, that was a so. that was a self-deprecating, not mm-hmm. defecating, like I once said. Mm-hmm. Self-deprecating joke at myself. Mm-hmm. There's not one mm-hmm. word I can't pronounce. There's dozens and dozens <laughs> of words I can't pronounce. But tight timetable. Those are three easy words. Yeah, it just rolls right off your tongue. It just so. comes right off. Yep. Mm-hmm. So we've got. Uh, bag full of questions. I'm sure at least one social security question, which I suppose we'll get to first here. Um, anything you want to announce or say before we dive right in? No, because I know we do have a tight timetable, so we will uh, forego. I asked Chris to please not go on and on and on like he normally does, and he's promised me he will. And uh, we will jump right into social security questions, which is a three-parter. So there's only going to be one technical email question, but Three different topics of Social Security in this one email, Chris. Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, let me see if he gave us... Actually, it's a she, Georgette, we will call her. She gives her real name. I don't think she gave a hint. Hmm. No hint. Okay. All right. She's from New York, in case anybody's wondering, but no hint for the state of New York. Okay. I turned 70 in December. December 1st, as a matter of fact, Chris, Mm -hmm. of this year, 2023. I will retire from my job November 30th. I have a pension with a cost of living adjustment five years after I retire. Uh, New York State will not tax my pension. That's good, especially living in a high-tax state like New York. I will have to start my RMDs when I turn 73, as does everyone. I have deferred compensation. I have a deferred compensation and a Roth account totaling six hundred thousand. Okay, I'm going to skip the rest because we're tight on time. 
Here are her... Oh, wait, no, I can't really skip too much. I'm sorry. I started collecting on my ex-husband's Social Security when I turned 66. He turned 67 that same month. My full Social Security amount will be at age 70 will be higher than the amount I am currently receiving on my ex-husband. My plan is to switch to my own benefit at that time. So far, so good? Yep. Let me I'll quickly clarify for people who don't know what she's done here. She's filed a restricted application for only a spousal benefit on her ex-husband's record, which she has the right to do because she was born before January 2nd of 1954. She was, in fact, born December 1st of 1953. And uh, then she's going to delay earning delayed retirement credits on her own record, on her own uh, benefits, and then claim it when it's reached its largest amount at age 70. So that's what she is is doing. That's the strategy. I'm glad you clarified that. And this is, in fact, the last year that this strategy will ever be able to be done because everyone else, no one else is born within the, the um, grandfathering period, right, that Social Security gave when they changed this rule. Yeah, so in on on January 2nd of 2024, the last person that could have been grandfathered in to take advantage of this strategy will turn 70 on that date and at that time this strategy then evaporates because there's no more growing your own anymore while you're claiming something else kind of situation. So this uh, the door to this strategy is if you're not doing it already, it's likely that you probably won't be able to the strategy used to go by the moniker, claim now, claim more later. That was the, the theory behind it, but that loophole was closed. Well, they call it a loophole. Don't get me going. That's not a loophole. But they closed it so no one else can do it, but this woman can. Okay, here's her questions, Chris. Mm-hmm. Since my birthday is December 1st, when should I notify Social Security that I want to switch over? Is November 1st considered my 70th birthday or is December 1st in order to be at my 70th year? Mm -hmm. Is there something special that I need to do? Nothing particularly special other than I'll point out that those of us, and I'm in that boat too because I was born on April 1st, those of us born on the first of the month are considered turning the age that we turn that day the month prior. That goes back to an, an age-old uh, court case involving uh, federal benefits. I don't know if it was specifically Social Security. Age-old is about 200 yeah, years right. old. So it was in, in the way the government considers you reaching a certain age, and, and Social Security follows those uh, rules effectively. So she's considered having turned 70 in the month of November uh, when she has a December 1st, which means she can start her age 70 benefit in November for payment in December. Everyone else born December 2nd through the 31st would claim in December for a January payment. So she gets her payment a month before everybody born the rest of the month. She gets lumped into the people in November, essentially with a November birthday. So uh, based on that, Social Security generally advises that you notify them of claiming decisions three months before you want it to go into effect. Now, since she's claiming already, she's probably got a little wiggle room here, and it's not like she has, has to do it this early, but I would probably contact them and indicate that you want to make this change sometime in August or September. Uh, to, to, to do this. But I wanted to point out she has something unique about her because of the December 1st birthday. Yeah, and if memory serves me correct, it was like 18... Yeah, it was a long time oh, ago. Oh, 9, 1839. It was 
almost 200 years ago that that court case uh, was settled. Okay, second question. Should my ex-husband pass away, the full amount of his Social Security would be higher than mine. Since Social Security already knows that I am an ex-spouse, will they automatically switch me over to his higher benefit, or do I have to notify them and request it? I would assume you have to notify them. I'm not just saying I'm going to assume because I don't know, but I would take it upon yourself to assume that you need to notify them because assuming they're going to automatically do something is a little risky. Um, They do not have perfect systems and something unique uh, or, or um, if I can interject, Chris, uh, you should let them know. Go ahead. If you remember, I would say maybe two years ago now, possibly three, but I think three is too much. Remember the GOA, GO, yeah, GAO, GAO, Government Accountability Office, Mm -hmm. did a study and found over a hundred something thousand Social Security recipients Mm -hmm. were being ripped off, for lack of a better term. And it was mostly because of this very thing. This kind of thing. Yep. It wasn't this specific thing. There's a variety of things that they're not doing and providing bad advice to people who have. Uh, eligibility for multiple types of benefits uh, to not automatically switching them when they are eligible for something better, things like that. So I would just put it in your, your back of your brain that if your ex predeceases you, you need to immediately reach out to Social Security and claim that higher benefit. Okay. Third, I thought there were only three questions. I just noticed they just got four. So this is like a fourth of one. Okay. Third, I am single with no children. My surviving parent and, oh, with one surviving parent and sibling. My family so far has longevity, late 80s to mid 90s. Do you ever recommend starting to take RMDs before the required date? Actually, I probably should have read this email ahead of time. (laughs) So there are three questions. There are only three questions because that was three and four rolled into one. I don't know why she made it two separate things. And it really doesn't have much to do with Social Security, but it does have to do with planning. And Mm -hmm. you're the planning guru in the office. What do you think? So if you take distributions before your required date, they're not called RMDs before the, you know, you reach, in her case, January 1st of of, uh, the year she turns 73, unless they change the law again. Um, So taking a distribution prior to that oftentimes makes perfect sense. Distribution or potentially conversions, which are, you know, for tax purposes, the the same effect as a distribution. So absolutely, there are plenty of times where it would make sense, but it's going to be based on your specific situation and your tax situation and your, you know, planned use of those assets that are trapped inside those always taxable accounts. Um, so um, maybe, you know, in her case, but she said, do you ever recommend? Absolutely. We recommend taking distributions often before the RMDs start. Um, when you read through her numbers, as I jotted them down, it didn't look like she had vast amounts inside of these RMD affected accounts. So for her, it may not be a big deal. But for many people, their RMDs can be quite large and putting off, you know, kicking the can, the tax can down the road until RMDs force you to take it out. You might regret enjoying low tax brackets early. You know, it's nice when they're happening, but if the rug gets pulled out from under you and the tax man comes barreling down on you uh, later on under RMDs, you're going to probably wish you had taken distributions prior, but it's totally specific to your circumstances. So I can't say generally if, if one should do it or not. 
Sorry, I had myself on mute. I said, (laughs) okay, fair enough. I did want to add that my my two cents, listener, is yes, we often do, as Chris has mentioned, uh, take RMDs long before they're they're scheduled to begin. Not take RMDs, but take distributions. Sometimes, because people have no choice, they need the money. Other times, tax planning. So we don't have nearly enough of her situation to, to give a solid answer, but I think we covered it pretty well. What do you think? I think so. All right. Now we're going to get into an annuity question. We still have tons and tons of annuity questions, uh, old ones and new ones from our National Annuity Awareness Month that we did in the month of June. This one came in um, from an industry person. I'll, I'll give that much. And it was not necessarily a question, but a point of view that he wants us to, I guess, he wanted to share his point of view with mm-hmm. us, but I think he also wants us to talk about it a little. So, anyways, I begin. Hi, Jim and Chris. I have been loving the annuity month-long podcast. Well, at least somebody did. <laughs> <laughs> On the most recent one, though, and this came in, folks, the end of June, so it would have been probably around the third or fourth week of June that uh, that show came out. On the most recent one, though, you kept saying how if it's decided that an annuity is right for someone, you would only choose to work with AAA rated companies. But don't we both know that perceived safety blanket is a fallacy? Can't a AAA rated insurance company just sell itself, just sell it to a far riskier offshore private equity company, as we both know Prudential did and Athene and many others are currently doing? I'm going to get back to what he's saying, but I'm just Uh reading the email first, folks. Uh Can't a AAA-rated company fail as Washington Mutual did? And other great companies like Lehman Brothers and Merrill Lynch? My point is we go on and on and on to clients about the safety of not putting too many eggs in one basket— but then say it's okay to put a big chunk of their money in this very non-diversified, risky position. Personally, I think if this trend continues, we have another potential 2008-level financial crisis if these companies start to fail. State guarantee funds aren't guaranteed, which we agree. We say that all the time. I find that an Orwellian name, the guarantee fund. State guaranteed funds aren't guaranteed, and some states have levels of protection as low as 100,000. Just a contrary opinion, I guess. I respect all you guys do immensely and recommend your show. So I am thinking maybe I might be missing something. By the way, I did check out that TSR ratio stuff that you spoke about. And all I can say is, wow. And he put W-O-W all in caps. And again, he's an industry person, folks. Mm -hmm. And he makes a lot of good points. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about this. He's right. Even highly rated companies can go under. But to me, the fact that a highly rated company may go under isn't reason enough not to believe in secure income and use it. I've spoken openly 
that I would strongly recommend. This is what we use. Do you guys use any company you want? But for lifetime guaranteed secure income, I do sleep at night with New York Life. I don't work for New York Life. I'm not a New York Life agent. I don't care one iota about, I don't want to say I don't care about New York Life. I do. I want the company to succeed, but I don't care about their products. I don't care what they push. I don't work for them. But there are other highly rated insurance companies. It's not just New York Life, please. But he makes good points. New York Life could go out of business. Other highly rated insurance companies could go out of business. There is no guarantee we get that. However, I'll make I'll let you continue, but just wanted to add, you know, we experienced some of this effects during the financial crisis in 2008. And a lot of insurance companies that struggled, it wasn't their entire business that was actually at risk, and it was only portions of it. And a lot of these big giant insurance companies have kind of segments within them and oftentimes the you know the annuity segment piece the more predictable piece uh is is totally fine and it was their behavior in another area that then gets kind of split off and something happened to it or a or a quote bailout or or support provided that type of thing that can happen but you know obviously a, a even a highly rated insurance company could erode over time or could suddenly be faced with a you know what we sometimes call a black swan event, which uh, you can rapidly go from being highly rated to being in real trouble. It's certainly certainly possible. So we have to you know admit that what that one thing you know what he's pointing out there. Right, but a couple mm-hmm. other things I want to add yeah. clarity too. The yeah. companies that he mentioned, WAMU, that was a right. savings and loan. Right. It was not an insurance company. Right. Merrill Lynch, that one made me laugh the most. Merrill, not, not laugh in, in a bad way, but Merrill was going to go under, folks. The right. thundering herd. Yep. And their whole life, their whole business model was, hey, hire us to invest. And they nearly invested themselves into oblivion mm-hmm. with the crap that they were buying on their own books because they're a broker-dealer. They buy stuff on their own books and then right. try to get other people to buy it from them at a profit. And they nearly went under. And they had a wedding to Bank of America that the Treasury Department arranged pretty much at the barrel of a gun and said to Bank of America, right. you're buying Merrill Lynch. <laughs> yeah. The companies that he's mentioning were non-insurance companies. AIG was uh-huh. the insurance company. But they nearly went under because they were the idiots who were insuring those collateralized debt obligations right. that turned out to be worthless, right. that the ratings agencies themselves, which turned out to be worthless and still are, that's one of the reasons when I do insurance, I look at TSR as well now. AIG, it was often said, if the government let AIG fail, their business of annuities and life insurance was sound would continue. and would have likely been sold off uh-huh. to another insurance company who would have continued right. it because it was structurally sound. Right. So I agree with him that the companies he's naming are in the financial services industry, but they really weren't backing anyone's lifetime interest, lifetime income payments. Yeah. And even if AIG had trouble... I do feel the life insurance and annuity arm would have been sold off. But that is not to make light of his point. Mm -hmm. Even a highly rated insurance company can go under. I have less and less faith in just the ratings 
companies for lifetime payments. Totally different listeners, and I'm sure this listener who's in the industry would agree, if you are buying a two-year, three-year, four-year, maybe even five-year, multi-year guaranteed annuity or some type of product like that, that perhaps the ratings or the TSR ratio of these insurance companies is a little less important, especially if the dollar amount is under the income guarantees of your state guarantee fund, even though the state guarantee fund is not guaranteed. But when it comes to lifetime income, I do pay attention to ratings agencies, yes, but you also look at other measures. And to me, insurance companies that are 100-plus years old, financially sound, and that's where the TSR ratio comes in, transparency, surplus, risk assets, TSR, I'm not fully in love with the TSR ratio. I have issues with what some of the founders of that ratio do, but I admire immensely the work that they're trying to do. They could just put a Chinese wall between the products they're trying to distribute and the analysis they're trying to provide. I really wish they would wall that off better. But outside of that, I'm learning a lot and getting a better idea. And I feel even more comfortable with some of these highly rated by the traditional Moody's and S&P type rating agencies. Some of those companies, Moody's and S&P, uh, their highly rated companies have very good TSR ratios. And to me, building both of those together, I do feel comfortable. I really do. You could spread that risk out, though, because he points mm-hmm. out all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. You could buy from two or three or four highly rated insurance companies if you want, especially nowadays mm-hmm. when you're not dealing with literal monthly checks arriving in the mail and you have to run to the bank and cash them. Right. It's all electronically deposited. Who cares if it's coming from one company or four companies, as long as the checks are coming in every month or every quarter or every year, whatever you set up for your payments. So you could, listener and listeners in general, diversify out amongst many companies. But it's not to say if you truly did do some research, and, and I agree, a lot of the ratings agencies, AM Best, Moody's, S&P, they're in bed with Wall Street. 2008 proved that. Watch the big short. Classic, funny, funny scene with, uh, what's his name? Uh, The the guy. Uh, Yeah, wasn't that um, Matt Damon in there? Or, uh, he was in the office. He was the guy who was... Oh, that's right. Um, What's his name? I like uh, him. He's a good actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on the tip of my tongue. Steve Carell? Is that it? Did I pull that out of nowhere? Uh, I think I got it. I think I nailed it. Steve Carell, right? Isn't that his name? He was in the office? Yes. I nailed it. Look at that. Yeah, very nice. I'm 60. <laughs> I did that. That's beautiful. There's a funny scene with Steve Carell and some other dude, I don't know who, where they're talking to the rating agencies. And again, this was based on a true story. Asking, I forget which rating agency, S&P, Moody's, AM Best, they were in the office saying, they were, re- they were researching this. How did you guys give these top ratings to these piece of crap, piece of worthless investments? And the answer was pretty much, if we didn't give the banks the ratings they wanted, mm-hmm. they would have went down the street to our competitor right. and got it there. Right. The banks 
pay the ratings agencies to be raided. That's a conflict of interest. But nonetheless, it's what we have. That's why I like this TSR. It's teaching me a lot about the the gimmicks, especially with private equity-owned insurance companies like Athene and others. The gimmicks that they do on their books, no way would I put any lifetime income on there. Whether you're buying a annuitized annuity or a withdrawal benefit fixed annuity tied to one of these companies for the rest of your life, no. I wouldn't. And that's just me. If you feel comfortable with it, go for it. I'm okay with that. I wouldn't. So my answer to him and my answer to all listeners, don't not, I know it's a double negative here, but don't not plan for lifetime guaranteed secure income to cover your minimum dignity floor of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care, only because you're going to sit there and say, well, the company could go under, so I'm not going to do it. Well, what's the option? Safe withdrawal rate? There's no guarantee there. At least with risk pooling and at least doing some due diligence and, yes, recognize the ratings agencies are being paid to rate the companies. But a 100-plus-year-old company, strong balance sheet, strong ratings from the ratings companies, even though they were paid to rate them. Strong TSR ratio where you're getting this company that's finally starting to look at the offshore gimmicks and at least disclosing those. You can kind of sleep a little better with that situation, I feel. But he pointed something else out that I have yet to talk about. And this pissed me off to no end. And it's why... Tom Gober, part of the founder of the TSR ratio, and many other industry people testified before Congress, built into Secure 2. Insurance companies, strong insurance companies, selling annuity business, or strong companies selling pensions to who, Chris? To offshore private equity-owned insurance companies. With far poor mm-hmm. ratings mm-hmm. that needs to end yeah. because prudential did that exact thing yep. now i'm not saying prudential was as strong a insurance company as say new york life or thrivent or tia all three of them are phenomenal although i talk about thrivent in one second all of them, though, are highly rated insurance companies with very p- strong ratings from the ratings agencies, even though they pay to be rated, and TSR ratios that are very favorable. Prudential might not have been at their level, but they were still high. <laughs> and they sold a chunk of their lifetime annuity business. N- not uh, speatized, uh, our verbiage, annuities, not those type, but withdrawal benefit annuities that we've talked about before to an offshore Bermuda-based private equity-owned insurance company. And that ticked me off when I saw that because you went from a strongly rated company to a not-so-strongly rated company mm-hmm. overnight. That's not what people bought. Right. That's why I'm angry. The regulators, smarten up, you idiots. And yes, and I called you idiots. So if you're a regulator, listen to this. I called you an idiot. Or at least your bosses, not you. 
tell them, tell Congress, don't allow this. If someone buys an apple and all of a sudden the apple is sold to a cantaloupe that's rotted, you're going to be, what the hell? I bought an apple. Why'd you give me a cantaloupe? Well, the apples sold out to the cantaloupes. People who bought a prudential annuity were not buying a private equity Bermuda-based poorly rated insurance company. They were buying prudential. Can you tell I'm a little angry over this one, Chris? Just a tad bit, yeah. He touched a nerve on that one. Yes. And this listener picked up on it. Mm -hmm. That's BS. Well, that's what's going on before Congress now. Not necessarily in the realm of what Prudential did, unfortunately, but in the realm of companies selling pensions that are backed by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, otherwise known as the U.S. government, fully insured to private equity insurance companies whose payments are now backed by the state guarantee funds, which, as this listener pointed out, are not guaranteed. That's what the testimony is. And it makes me scratch my head. The idiots in Washington actually need testimony on this? Doesn't it just tell you at face value this is wrong? As Chris and I said before, how can this not violate, if not the law, the spirit of Arissa, Chris? That was your cue to take over. I'm agreeing with everything that you're saying, essentially. I think it's a bait and switch kind of a thing where people are, you know, buying into one thing and then they get shifted without their permission into something that is potentially less than what they were bargaining for. And if, you know, I don't know what the remedy is, if they're going to continue to offer this, then they need to be, you know, giving the consumers some opt out or something. But, but even that isn't going to be fair because, you know, you, you can't, uh, you know, take your money and go somewhere else easily. Even if they open the door, maybe the marketplace isn't as good at that moment in time. So then you're thrusting interest rate risk upon them. Um, even if you give them the choice to leave, if if something like this happens, this this should not happen the way it's happening. I don't know how they can stop it. An outright ban on it probably isn't going to go through because these companies need the ability to have these business transactions and move things around to a certain extent. I get that. But uh, this is, a, you know, the prudential thing is a prime example of something that I don't think should be allowed to happen in the way it happened. No, that, that, that needs to be put a stop to. That, that I will never do business with prudential again over this. They just set a bad taste in my mouth that you guys, uh, uh, again, not New York Life level rated insurance company, but a, is, I think the Rock one, get a piece of the Rock or whatever, a, a nice insurance company that you could feel safe with, and all of a sudden selling a whole book of business, they call it, to some Bermuda-based, private equity-owned, B-rated insurance company? Say what? Anyways. I agree with the listener on that. That is a whole risk in and of itself. That A-rated, highly rated, double-A, triple-A rated companies could still theoretically do. Congress and the regulators need to stop this. Prudential sale was approved by the state regulators. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. 
Who the hell are they to authorize that? They are the ones who are supposed to be protecting you. That is what is wrong, and I will concede that. Now, at this point, I don't think any of those policies are in any trouble. Have None become whatsoever. troubled yet? No. So maybe there will be no harm, no foul. But just because it didn't happen this time, doesn't mean it won't. Right, and I wouldn't necessarily panic. It just is like, seriously, now there's just this little extra thing we got to worry about for the next 20, 25, 30 years. If you have a lifetime income here that this company may not be around, I don't know. It's just, I know as a firm, we would never have recommended somebody buy a lifetime stream of income from a Bermuda-based, private equity-owned, B-rated insurance company. But anybody who did business with Prudential years ago just got handed that. And I am more ticked off at the regulators for approving it. I, I, I don't understand that. If there's a regulator listening, if you want to come on and explain to us, and I promise, I will put duct tape over my, well, that will be hard, but I would. And just let you explain before... We get you off. I, I promise not to argue with you is my point. If you are seriously a regulator and can explain why you allowed Prudential to do that, I'd love to hear your point of thought. Maybe Chris and I are missing something. It just rubs me the wrong way, and it clearly rubbed this industry guy the wrong way, too, because he pointed it out. Okay, anyways, we beat that horse to death. Let's move on to – how about an Irma question, Pete? Um, or, or Chris. Or Chris. Mm-hmm. I think Pete would have said yes. If, oh, probably if he here. He, he loves okay. Irma. I thought so. Um, oh, oh, you'll get this one. Mm. I, I because I think in your lifetime you have consumed many a cheeseburgers. Am I right or wrong? Um, sure. I'm American. <laughs> I'm American. I've eaten cheeseburgers. <laughs> um, Are you I'm not a cheeseburger to, eater? I'm trying to see the answer though. I never knew this. Interesting. Here's the hint, folks. She is from the state where the name Cheeseburger was trademarked. Someone trademarked Cheeseburger? I had no idea. Cheese. So actually, you're not supposed to be able to. Everybody uses Cheeseburger. So well, Maybe not long ago. Maybe it was new at some point, but now everybody uses it. Yeah, but so don't you, when you trademark still, something, doesn't no, that mean no one can use it? Anymore? Not forever. If it becomes, you know, it can be challenged and you can just give up defending it. And there's a lot of ways it kind of just becomes part of the normal culture, which I would say cheeseburger has become that since everyone uses that. But so it was trademarked initially mm-hmm. in a certain state. I have no, and this listener is from that state. Oh, she's got me stumped. I have no idea. Neither did I, and this is what amazes me because apparently it's the state you and I live in. What? She wrote, the name Cheeseburger was trademarked by Lewis Ballast of Humpty Dumpty Drive-In, located in Denver, Colorado, 1935. I never knew that. I've been in Colorado 24 years. Is there even a Humpty Dumpty Drive-In anymore in Denver? I, I never knew that, folks. This is the amazing stuff you learn on the Retirement and IRA show. <laughs> so 
Cheeseburger. I had no idea. It came from Colorado in 1935. But the amazing thing, folks, is prior to this guy, nobody ever thought of putting a piece of cheese on a hamburger. Well, I think they did. <laughs> they just weren't smart enough to trademark it. <laughs> oh, I don't But you stop and think oh, about it. Oh, here Someone, it is. It's true. 1935. It says a trademark for the name Cheeseburger was awarded to Louis or Louis Ballast of Humpty Dumpty Drive-In, yet he never enforced it. So that's the that's the key. He got it, but he didn't, you know, he didn't. He wanted that to be used by the masses, apparently. Or he didn't have the money to defend it, one or the other. To, so, yeah. Isn't there a Saturday Crazy. Night Life skit? Cheeseburger, 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 something like oh, that? Oh, yeah. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But John Belushi, Belushi John Belushi. Yeah, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. All right, anyways, here's the Irma question. Okay. Uh, Dear Jim and Chris, I am doing some Roth conversions, and I'm trying to figure out how not to exceed the Irma limits while maxing out my conversions. Mm. Chris will answer this one because Irma Mm -hmm. is kind of related to Social Security. He will Mm -hmm. also explain what the income-related monthly adjusted amount, or Irma, means, for those of you who don't Mm -hmm. know. So be patient. Okay. Can you, number one, can you tell me when I'll be able to know the maximum I can earn this year, 2023? To avoid the Irma surcharge in 2025. Chris will explain why she's looking two years out, folks. I'm afraid you are going to tell me it's going to be sometime in 2024. (laughs) Don't start laughing yet. Don't give away your answers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Question two. My husband is collecting Social Security for the first time this year in 2023. Since I'm still working... I'm going to assume that 85% of his Social Security will now be taxable. How much of his Social Security is included in the MAGI, Modified Adjusted Gross Income, calculation? I think she's talking about Irma here, Chris. Mm -hmm. How much of his Social Security, 85 or 100% of it, is going to be included in the Modified Adjusted Gross Income calculation for determining if the income-related monthly adjusted amount is going to raise her Medicare premiums two years from now. Yeah. Now you guys know why retirement planning and tax planning can be so opaque. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, so in order, so when will she know how much she could have earned in 2023 to avoid Irma in 2025? There's the two-year delay there because of what is reported to Social Security and the Medicare system so that they know what when to charge you Irma, the latest tax return they have when they set your Medicare premiums each January is the tax return for 2025 will be the tax return for the tax year 2023 will be the latest one available to them to make that determination. So that's why there's this two-year delay effectively in that. And to kind of uh, stick with the theme of the question with the cheeseburger idea, I'll gladly gladly pay you Tuesday for a cheeseburger today. Um, There's a timing issue. And that is they don't set the 2023 income limits for Irma, which affects your 2025 Irma until late fall, early winter of 2024. So in November-ish, you'll know what the income allowed is for 2023 to set the 2025 Medicare premiums. And they need to know it then. They do that calculation then because they're going to release in December what your Medicare premiums are for the year of 2025. 
So you can estimate it, but it's always a prediction and you might be off a little bit. That is why since IRMA, the income related monthly adjustment amount is a tiered system, which a married filing joint, uh, she's married, so we'll use that one, married filing joint, their uh, 2023 IRMA limits based on 2021 income, you could earn up to $194,000 of Maggie, I like Maggie instead of Magi, but MAGI, Modified Adjusted Gross Income, in 2021 before you start to hit the first Irma tier, which will begin to increase your Medicare premiums for Part B and Part D, as in dog. And there's different tiers. There's about five tiers. And as you move up with Maggie to higher levels, your Medicare premiums will increase as well. And it's a cliff, meaning every time you hit the income limit, you go a dollar over, you're into the next tier. So that's why we didn't know the 194 back in 2021 when that income was being earned. And that's the issue she's facing now in 2023. She doesn't want to wait until late 2024 to know whether she did too much conversion in 2023. She's going to just have to do the best job she can and stay away from triggering that cliff by going a dollar over. So you're going to have to kind of estimate where you think the bracket's going to be based on inflation. And then, you know, dial it back a little bit from there, because the last thing you want to do is miss your prediction by just a buck or two and go over and push yourself into Irma. Although the first Irma tier is not particular, is not real punitive. Um, It's the higher tiers. So I wouldn't be all that concerned if you accidentally stumbled over the first Irma tier. But if you're dead set against doing any Irma, you're going to need to stay away from what you think the first tier is going to be when they announce it in late 2024. So that's the bummer about this is she's picked up on the challenge of doing Irma planning in that we're, we'll never know the numbers at the right time. Uh, we're always basing it on forecasts and predictions, you know, educated predictions, but still we don't know it. Then the second piece that Maggie modified adjusted gross income, which is the number they use to determine if you've gone over these different tiers is for, for, and there's different Maggie's. So you can't just look look up Maggie because there's modified adjusted gross income that applies to lots of different things in the tax code. This for Irma purposes is your AGI plus tax exempt interest. That's the Maggie for Irma. So you'll look up, there's Maggie for this, that, you know, Irma is the one we're talking about here. And so it is only 85% of your husband's social security that's going to be scraped in because it's only that amount of the social security that's in the AGI figure. So only the taxable portion of the social security is going to contribute to the Maggie that's going to determine your IRMA bracket penetration for the year, two years hence. Uh, Messy, I know. Makes retirement planning and tax planning all It makes it incredibly, incredibly difficult. Yeah. So just give yourself leave room. This the leeway uh, is my right. recommendation. Yep. Okay. Um, one more question, then we're going to wrap this bad boy up. Um, he lives in the state where the USS Alabama World War II battleship is currently docked. Hmm. Is it in Texas? 
Is that your final answer? Yes. Can you press the little eh? Mm, I don't want to, but I will. <laughs> he actually lives in Huntsville, Alabama. Oh, well, that was a little too obvious. I guess that, I that's what been. he said. He, yeah. he, he gave one question. He says, hey, ask Chris this. I live in the state where the Marshall Space Flight Center is located. Oh, see, I would have known that one. You would not have. I do. I, bull, I follow the space bull, program. Bull, bull, bull. He said, but if that's too hard, then he'll definitely get this. Tell him I live in the state where the USS yeah, battleship I, Alabama is. And then he put a little smiley face. I overthought you were that it. one. No, you overthought I, I, it. You I overthought definitely it. overthought it. Okay, here's his question. He goes back, folks, to the series we, we did on buffered products. And I'm not going to read his entire uh, question, but if you remember, folks, when we did that series, we had a hypothetical example of someone who had $2.8 million in assets. And we started walking through how they're going to create a see-through portfolio. And in that conversation, uh, I think that was a series of shows we did on it, uh, I briefly mentioned, or, or maybe a little bit longer than briefly, knowing me, mentioned buffered products. These are products that will allow you some upside potential, and we're not going to get deep into them on this show. You can listen to the old shows from a couple of months ago. But they offer some upside potential tied to any reference assets. You can get them tied to the NASDAQ, to the Dow, to the S&P. We generally use the one tied to the S&P. You can get them tied to the Euro stock index. There's all different reference assets that these products will be tied to. We are not talking fixed indexed annuities. We're not talking annuities at all. These are exchange-traded funds or unit investment trusts that we're talking. Anyways, in exchange for some limited upside potential tied to that reference asset, the investment manager uses an option strategy to protect on the downside. And they can come in many different flavors. 10% downside protection, 15, 20, 25, 30. I haven't heard of any 35 or 40, but it's not to say they don't exist. I just don't know them. So in a nutshell, folks, that's what they are. Here's his question. Based on the details you gave on the Buffered products, uh, his question, I, he, I, I paused because he actually did some, I'll, I'll touch it. He said, I did some creative Googling, and I think the product you use is, and he named it. Um, I will give a shout out to that listener. Your creative Googling worked. You did figure out the one we use, but I will not state what it is. There are many, I think 40 current providers of these offering hundreds total of different options. We will not name the one we use. You do your own due diligence if you want to utilize this. But listener, I don't know how the heck you did it, but you did figure it out. Okay, so he continues. That said, which he guessed the answer. That said, I am not asking for specific personal advice. But in the example you gave for protecting the assets, I don't recall if you mentioned how much of a downside buffer, 10, 20, or 30, you recommend, or that if you tend to steer the majority of your clients to any one of these stated percentages or not. 
I personally am leaning towards a 30% protection given the upside potential you mentioned on your podcast. If you can say for that example, what percentage of downside protection do you recommend to someone? And to me, folks, and Chris, you can give your your opinion, then we wrap up. To me, what he's asking, folks, and the way we explained it on the show, we tend to use these buffered products in positioning. Think see-through portfolio. If you're in the accumulation stage of retirement planning, if you're in your 30s, 40s, even early 50s, even mid to late 50s, if you're not going to retire until your mid to late seven, uh, 60s, if you're in the accumulation phase of retirement, I don't think you need these products. But if you are retired... When we start to create a see-through portfolio, when we try to come up with the fun number, we have two positions, go-go fund spending and minimum dignity floor reserves. Those two positions we put in the principally protected risk capacity category. For obvious reasons, go-go fund spending, Chris and I believe passionately, if you can't tell, we passionately believe that people should spend while they have the health inclination, desire, and ability, otherwise known as the go-go phase of retirement, they should spend on fun. And one of the biggest ways people don't spend on fun is the stock market takes it away. The economy contracts or something blows up, either literally by geopolitical or wars, or, or figuratively something in the economy goes haywire, like the 08 housing catastrophe, which just causes losses in portfolios, which causes an emotional reaction to clam up like a clamshell, just tighten right up and not spend anything. When you have a limited length of time left, I'm 60, folks. I don't have many years left, relatively speaking. I know that. I'm not a dumb man. I'm hoping I can go another 20, 25, 30 years, but let's be realistic. 20, 25 years from now, I'm not going to be as sharp as I am now. I might still be here, but I'm not going to be doing what I'm doing. While Chris was answering the Irma question, my hunting buddy just texted me. He wants to go on a bull elk hunt in New Mexico in October. And we're texting each other back and forth, should we do this? Do you think when I'm 80 or 85, I'm going to be getting a text from him, if they're even still texting in the future like that? Hey, do you want to go on a bull elk hunt? No. But I know that I have a time right now that I can do it, this go-go phase. We don't want people to suffer emotionally, but we also uh, on, on those ad, on money earmarked for go-go, if they drop, we don't want people to emotionally freak out and say, I'm not going to spend on fun. My portfolio's down. So that's why we believe in principal protection. But go-go phases, Chris, I think you'll agree, for some people can be more than four, five, or six years. They can be mm-hmm. eight, 10, 12, 15 years, especially if you retire at 58, 59, 60, mm-hmm. 62, 63 We don't want to necessarily put people in 
rolling three-month T-bills or a five-year tip or a five-year treasury note. We don't necessarily want to use those, even though they're principal protection and they can earn 3 4 5% or even a five-year MIGA paying about 5% right now. That's not enough potential. Let's look at dollars that might be needed six, eight, 10, 12 years from now and earmark this to a buffered product that might give you an upside return, say, tied to the S&P. I'm just randomly choosing a reference asset here of the S&P. Tied to the S&P, maybe with a cap rate of between 12 and 18%, depending on if you want a 10% buffer, 20% buffer, or 30% buffer. At least there's a much greater upside potential. And if you buy it as an ETF, it's got a 12-month hold. Oh, horror. You got to hold it for 12 months and then the insurance kicks in. So if the market is down, let's say you're tied to the S&P, you have a 30% buffer and the market's down 35, you might not freak out because you're going to say, okay, well, when this matures, I'm going to be down five. This product is going to assume the first 30% loss in the S&P. I have to assume the next five, oh horror, I'm down five, not 35, I'm still going to go on this cruise, or I'm still going to pay $50,000 for my daughter's wedding, or whatever it is you wanted to do. That's where we think these should be used. That's how we use them. Now, his question, can you tell me what you use? We use what fits the client. We don't generally use these for expenses six years or sooner. We will use pure principal protected products for that. A five-year tip, five-year MIGA, five-year treasury note, five-year brokered CD, a five-year bank CD, whatever the case is. For year one through five, we want pure, one year through six rather, I want pure principal protection. Year 7, 8, 9, 10, I'm receptive to these buffered products. So it falls more to the risk tolerance of the person. Right. Are you going to freak out? I, I don't personally think 10% buffer is enough, even though the upside cap on those are 20, 25%. That's pretty, well, 25, not so much anymore. Right now, I see them at about 20, 23 on a 10% downside, but that. That might not be enough emotional protection, folks. Market's down 30, you're down 20. You still might be freaking out. Mm -hmm. Most will gear or migrate or gravitate, whatever the word is, towards the 20 or 30. But we don't. You're wrong, listener. Steer, quote unquote, steer our clients. This is pure emotional protection. Mm -hmm. That's our thought. Do you want to wrap this up? Yeah, I think I can wrap up pretty quickly because that's that was the point I was going to make is it's really more about the emotions of it and emotions are very specific to that person. And the good news is if they're to that point in the conversation with us, they have at minimum a better view of their entire situation because we've gone through a lot of discovery through this whole process and they have a much better understanding of where they stand compared to when they started the process with us. So they're they're coming at this with a fairly informed viewpoint. And then it truly comes down to, you know, an emotional uh, prediction. You know, what what protection do I need so that I will still not the money that is protected, but the money I'm planning to spend sooner than later, those early years, the years one through six money, will I continue to spend through that 
even if this pool for years six through maybe 12 is down, fill in the blank, how much, you know, if, 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 you know, so, so I think that's, you nailed it with the personalization based on their emotional needs as much as anything, um, is appropriate. So no, you know, steering them to something doesn't feel like the right way of describing it at all. Yeah, we don't steer. It's purely Mm -hmm. emotional. I will say anecdotally in our practice, it's almost 50-50 between 20 and 30. Seriously, Mm -hmm. folks. Uh, No one, even though we give them the option, no one has chosen 10. Because if you're working with us, you kind of understand what we're trying to do. There are two main risks that are going to keep you from spending your fun money. We didn't even get into minimum dignity floor reserve, but we do on the previous podcast this guy references. But as far as fun money, there are two main things that are going to keep you from spending on fun. Sequence of return risk and emotional risk. We can handle the sequence of return risk by fully principally protecting the first six years. The emotional risk, though, is just as important and is often overlooked. But when you are essentially principally protecting year seven, eight, nine, ten of your go-go phase, if you have a 10-year go-go phase, and getting cap rates of 12 to 23%, depending on the downside buffer, those are still good rates of return. And keep in mind... We have a targeted rate of return right now on fun of 4.3%. That's our targeted rate of return based on what we look and see in the CPI and the, the, the components of the CPI. And we're going, to be, we're going to be greatly changing our targeted rate of return on recreation expenses. But not right now. we got too many other things going on. But right now it's 4.3. If we have a targeted rate of return of 4.3, do you need to try to assume and earn a uncapped 15, 18, 20, 25, 30% return on your go-go fund? Is it that important to you? You accumulation planners, you can't let go of that mindset. What's going to cause you more harm? Losing 30% of your go-go fund or exceeding a 18% cap by 10 percentage points? I got 28 instead of 18. Is that going to allow you to go on four around-the-world cruises now all of a sudden? Or would losing 30% of your fund reserve, because you have no protection on your assets, losing 30, and that causes you to tighten up like a clam and not spend on fun for two or three years? What's going to... Is the gain potential going to give you more pleasure than the loss potential could curtail on a go-go phase that can end at any moment? Sooner or later, listeners, you have to let go of this accumulation mindset. And, oh, I'm, I, I'm going to give up 10% per, percentage points more because of the cap rate. Oh, this is no way. I can't do that. No, no, no. I got to earn. It's, I got to earn. No. It's about getting comfortable, convincing yourself, this is my fun number. What do we always say, Chris? Money left over is what? Life unlived. Life unlived. When it comes to fun, and at any time, you can have the rug pulled out from under you. I, 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 
Sadly, I have seen it too, and I'm not making that up. We've had cases of people, This one sad case, I'd said this before, 11 months into his retirement, diagnosed with a condition that gave him five years to live, maybe seven, he didn't make it to. 11 months into retirement. Your go-go phase is limited. Give up this notion that you have to invest every single thing with an unlimited, uncapped growth potential. No. Your fun, spend it on fun. Don't let Wall Street take it and don't emotionally give up doing something for one, two, three, four years because the market's down and you have no protection. And then when you finally feel comfortable that you're going to go out and spend again, something happens and you can't. All right, I'll shut up, but that I believe so passionately. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. So uh, we want to thank everybody for sending in their questions. That's what makes the show work. If you want to send in your own questions for a future show, just send them to Jim directly. Jim at JimHelps.com is the email. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. Make sure in the subject line you put uh, that it's a question for the show, and that'll get his attention. We like the hints still coming in, the you know guess the state situation uh, that's going on. There's been some really good ones lately. People are getting really creative and coming up with stuff that – really stumped me that I've never heard before. And I, I like them because I learned something new, like the whole cheeseburger trademark thing today. That was actually fascinating. So really do appreciate it. And uh, thanks again for listening. And we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 